With the recent executive orders from President Trump regarding the travel ban and sanctuary cities, our nation is in the middle of a polarized debate. Many Seattle residents are asking themselves how this affects our city. Who better to provide clarity to what's at stake than former Mayor Mike McGinn? Join us as Mayor McGinn shares his thoughts on the new presidential orders, what you as a resident of Seattle can do to impact your community, and how citizens of our city and our nation can unify despite their differences. We also couldn't help but ask him about the possibility of a Seattle NBA team. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. Welcome. This is Rise Seattle Podcast. I'm Tyler. And I'm Phil. And today we are here with former mayor of Seattle, Mike McGinn. Mike is an activist, a dad, host of a podcast called You, Me, Us, Now, a podcast about people who try to change things. You're a Greenwood activist, a former Sierra Club state chair, an avid cyclist. Thank you, Mayor McGinn, for being here. Yeah, thanks so I know much. That, that term, avid cyclist, always... You commuted here from Greenwood you to Northeast on Seattle a bike. on a bike. Yeah. Okay, yeah. now, but let me ask you a question. If I had driven here, would you have said he's an avid driver? Hmm. Touche. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Okay. Good point. Very I yeah. cycle to get places. Nice. You cycle yeah. more than I do. Let's put it that yeah. way. Okay, so yesterday I saw you on Twitter, uh -huh. and you were commenting about, I believe it was um, the recent travel ban that came out in an executive order from President Trump. Yeah. And I said, hey, we need to talk to this guy. You have authority, both with policy, uh, both with leading a city, and we need to ask you all the questions that we want to know. Just about want to dig into it a little deeper. Exactly. What's going on? And what, what's at stake here for the people right. of Seattle? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and just considering your pedigree and uh, your political activism and where you've been in your life, we felt like you were the perfect guide to kind of see guide us across the stream, so to speak. Well, there's um, a lot of people who are in this field, but I'm I'm glad to be here. Yes, and, <laughs> well, you know, throw me the hard ones, and I'll do my best. Okay. To, we're we're thankful. To give it back to you. Um, and because we scrambled within 24 hours to get you here, uh, this is a collection of uh, questions from our community. Oh, cool. Um, so it's people in Seattle who care about certain things, things that we're also debating did as well. Did you put out a call for questions? We did, Facebook, actually, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, that's so, great. That's so great. It's, so it's this is like a mini town hall. It, yeah, sure. Is. Let's look at it that way. Yeah, you yeah. guys are just, you're just being the conduit for the community questions. Doing our best. I'm ready. Yeah, so um, I'm going to read this question. This is from okay. my friend Amy. So uh, politics is supposed to be defined as the art of compromise. Neither party seems inclined to work towards bipartisan solutions or compromise. It seems as though we treat compromise as weakness when it is in fact strength. And as most Americans fall somewhere more in the middle where a compromise might actually satisfy, what are your thoughts and is there still room for a bipartisan action? You know, I think what we're seeing is that the elected officials are reflecting the increasing polarization within the electorate, mm. you know, and reflecting and, and probably feeding it because the, the um, I mean, that's a great, it's a great question. And of course, you want to see people coming together, identifying the problem, solving the problem, 
you know, coming out together. Even if they argue over the whys and wherefores, they should reach a middle ground. Um, but it's been breaking down, obviously. I mean, look at the fact that, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely partisan, and I'll, I'll, I'll own that. Uh, but look at the way the Republicans blocked the nomination to the Supreme Court of Merrick Garland for a year. This is just unprecedented, you know, and to see if they could have a Republican in the White House to get a Supreme Court justice. So clearly it, it has been becoming more polarized. And I think ultimately it's public pressure that's going to push elected officials back towards the middle. I think the a lot of the polarization in this country reflects growing income inequality and mm-hmm. And you're feeling these cultural differences, too. Like, if you look at who who voted for who in the last election between Trump and Clinton, um, places that were more diverse, people are much more comfortable with a diverse population, you know, voted for Clinton. Uh, communities that were very white voted for Trump. And that's a really disturbing sign in our country for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I have the answer to the question of can we get back to that, but somehow or another we... The public has to find a way to get in touch with its common values. And maybe it'll happen through the course of the reaction to some of the things Trump is doing um, that will start saying, oh, no, actually, you know, this is a bedrock value to welcome immigrants and refugees. And we've gone too far. Maybe maybe it'll come out of this. You being a, a, a partisan person, yeah. um, when you're speaking to someone who disagrees with you um, on a polar level, um, how do you typically go about addressing yeah. those things. And I say partisan. The fact of the matter is I, um, you know, in the sense of, I use that in the in the sense of I, I have strong beliefs and, mm-hmm. in things. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually, if you, um, I wasn't that popular with, with uh, elected Democrats, you may have mm-hmm. remembered during my term. So I voted I was, for you. Thank you, man. I, I did as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, and I was kind of a little bit out of the Republican-Democrat spectrum uh, because you know, some of my positions were inconsistent with the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, that was fine. I, I think that it's interesting. You're talking about the things I worked on. When I worked in Greenwood, nobody really dug too deep into what somebody's political leanings were when we were trying to talk about what does it take to get sidewalks in the neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, or that we wanted a healthy business district um, or that we wanted it to be safe to, you know, get around. Um, you know, there was a whole host of things that that you could find agreement on. And and most often, you know, in that interpersonal relationship, you can find common ground um, mm-hmm. and things you can work on together. And that certainly was true in the mayor's office as well. Um, I had big disagreements with uh, council members over issues, but we could work together on different issues. Because when you're working, when you're in the same place working on stuff, you have to do it. Um, in some ways, it feels as if everybody's retreating into their own ideological bubble now of news and community and aren't speaking to more mm. people. I wish I had an easy answer to that. Yeah. My recommendation would be you know, to get involved in your community in any way possible mm. to kind of practice little d democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to work on, on, the, on at our local school, you know, mm. in our local community, mm-hmm. make a better park? All of those things are, is, are how people learn the tools of compromise mm-hmm. and working together. One follow-up question. So I, I was actually reading today on how uh, technology is playing a part in our, our partisanship as well because, 
you have computers that are learning what we like on right. Facebook, right? Right. And then it's just generating more things that we like and putting more things. So my newsfeed or, um, you know, my, basically the consumption that I have looks a lot different than my family in Nashville. Right. Um, and so we, that actually almost forces us into those ideological bubbles even more so because we're programming our brains to, to, to basically, that's our reality, right? Um, my reality versus my family's reality in Tennessee is, is just different. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's real, yeah. you know, and we all see, we all see it. We all see it happening. I don't know. I'm kind of going back to my prior answer when I'm, when I'm thinking about the fact of, um, you know, not all conflict intention is bad if you're surfacing and discussing important issues. In, in fact, I'd argue that if you suppress issues and don't talk about them, as we all know in our interpersonal relationships, that can be as bad, or that's worse, can, can be worse in the long run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that um, we have Black Lives Matters activists now raising issues about uh, mass incarceration of African Americans. It feels very uncomfortable to a lot of Americans to be confronted with that, as I'm sure it felt very uncomfortable to be confronted by um, anti-segregation marchers, you know, in in the past. But that process sparked a public discussion, which led to real change. So we shouldn't look at conflict and tension as being inherently bad. Is is it surfacing an important issue? And is it leading to a discussion about how to resolve it and address inequities and injustice or people's concerns in some way or not? Um, and I think that's one of the challenges we face now because as the country's gotten more polarized, you know, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, which is about inequality, Black Lives Matter, which is about, you know, institutional racism and implicit bias that, you know, mm-hmm. our society and explicit bias that our society can demonstrate towards people of color. Um, those are important issues. You can't just like, can't we make those go away? Can't people just compromise? No, we actually have to address them in some meaningful way. Um, and I, you know, that's, I think, what's so discouraging about the technology mm-hmm. um, is that it, it makes it harder for people to reach, you know, to have those types of conversations. Family members disclaiming each other and, um, you know, I'm not going to talk to you on Facebook anymore or mm-hmm. communicate with you. It's, you know, it's distressing. Totally. Well, if, if conflict leads to meaningful discussion, then the last two weeks means that maybe we have some meaningful discussion ahead of us as a country. Yeah. One of the executive orders that came um, from the the White House is uh, in regards to a travel ban. Right. So I think most people listening, we have engaged Seattle citizens here that are aware of, of our city and what's going on in the world, but um, maybe aren't privy to all the details involved. But to summarize, we have a ban from um, incoming non-citizens to our country from seven um, predominantly Muslim countries. And I guess from your take, first question is, there's a little bit of a, a dialogue going or a debate. Is it a Muslim ban? Is it a travel ban? What, um, from your estimation, was the intent? Um, was it simply national security or is there no. something... You know, I mean, Trump was on the campaign trail saying that he wanted, you know, to ban Muslims. He he said it. Um, He presumably got to a point where somebody told him, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. It's it's against every value the country holds. Uh, Rudolph Giuliani was on TV saying, well, we showed him how to do it legally. We named countries which were the source of violence. So it's not the religion. 
Um, but even Trump had to weigh in and say, yeah, but, you know, we have to stop the persecution of Christians. So he, he reintroduced religion into it. Mm -hmm. So it really does appear to be a pretext for okay. religious discrimination as well as, you know, just against people who are of Middle Eastern origin. Although not every country, as we've seen, mm -hmm. ones that have been better friends economically to us or in which Trump has business interests yeah. were excluded. So it's a... Yeah, it's really disturbing. So, that, so that's on one level, right? That religion um, seems to be such a basis for a decision. Uh, there's another level, which is just the um, who we are as a country. We've always been a welcoming place that's made us economically more prosperous and vital and culturally more rich. I mean, this is that's offensive too. There's yet another level which is, to me, even more concerning, which is the degree to which a president has authority to do this given the Constitution and existing laws of the country. And what happens now? We are, I feel like we are potentially entering constitutional crisis territory yeah. right now. And that's a really disturbing, um, that's a really disturbing issue. And you hear that from the Democratic side of the aisle right now. You know, will the customs officials back down if ordered to by the court? We're not even quite clear the degree to which customs officials are complying with recent court decisions, mm. asking them to, you know, change their behavior. Yeah. That's really concerning. Um, we're not hearing from that many Republicans in Washington, D.C., you know, which is regardless of what they may feel about the policy, whether they approve or disapprove of the policy, do they approve or disapprove of the president and the executive branch saying, hey, we don't have to listen to the judiciary or we don't have to follow those laws? Mm. We're seeing it here on immigration, but we might see it in any bunch of different areas. And it's not a new issue, by the way, to the Trump administration. This is a common uh, issue between Congress and an executive is the executive grabbing too much power to themselves, using executive orders or discretionary decisions to thwart the will of the legislature. Mm -hmm. It's a longstanding issue. Trump appears to be just, hey, it's popular. I'm going to do it. You can't stop me. And that's, that's a very scary place for a country to go to. And that's a value too. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, will the law prevail? So in terms of the travel ban... <clears throat> The, I'd like to apply it to Seattle right. if we can. So we have, of course, we have just everyday people that live here in Seattle that call Seattle home that are from Iran or right. from another country, and their family no longer can visit, uh, most likely, from what I, from my understanding of the of the law. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a lot of war torn countries that were um, marked as unsafe for 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 people to travel to the U.S. from. In terms of refugees, what is Seattle's history in in, oh, in being a, a safe yeah. haven for refugees? And it's it's longstanding. Okay, um, the Somali refugee community is very large. The whole um, East African community, you know, Ethiopian and Eritrean and Oromo. We have a lot uh, Sudanese. We have a fair number of Sudanese. We have um, re refugees from um, relatively more recent refugees from um, Cambodia and uh, Bhutan. Um, has also had issues, Burmese refugees, Ukrainian, you know, refugees mm. as well. So this is ongoing. 
And if you go back historically, I was invited to the 40th anniversary of the arrival of the first Vietnamese in Washington State, which was down um, down here at, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of the fort, but it's part of the Lewis McCord Air Force Base as a, as a National Guard base. And at the time, you know, the, these were Vietnam, refugees from the Vietnam War. Many of them had helped us in war. Um, they had fled because they were fearful of what the new regime would do to them. Uh, the governor of California at the time said, we have too many refugees. We can't handle all this. And Governor Evans said, we'll take them here. And they flew up to the, you know, to the Air Force Base. They were met by Japanese Americans and Filipino Americans and, and others, you know, prior, you know, immigrant communities as well to welcome them. Um, so it was a very moving ceremony to be there at the 40th anniversary. Sure. So let's think about Iran. One of the biggest issues in Iran is so many of the people who are seeking visas here and have gone through extreme vetting already and are, and are, we are not bringing them back. We weren't bringing them back fast enough before Trump were the people who assisted the American troops. Uh, I said Iran. I meant Iraq. In Iraq. Um, there was a great This American Life episode on this where they, they interviewed one of the women who was a translator. The troops, our troops, depended upon Iraqi translators, and they put their lives at risk for our troops. These are the people being excluded. Mm-hmm. You know, and take a look at, you know, I, I believe our city's richer for having Absolutely. had the, all of these refugees over all of these years. We have a, a duty you know, to do this to the to the broader community. But in the case of the Iraqi translators, I mean, that one goes to another level, uh, even beyond that. So, yeah, so it's a very disturbing thing that we're treating these people as, you know, potential terrorists when the likelihood of terrorism is extremely low. Right. But what is likely is that they may not live if they have to stay where they are. That is that is, in fact, likely. Is, is there a possibility of, of encouraging extremism? Like if we put our hands... Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, you're asking the question because you know it's true. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is... We've just given the jihadists one of the, you know, best recruiting tools they have. They're the ones claiming that it's a religious and cultural war between East and West. And we've had, you know, Obama, you know, and Bush before him saying this is not about religious ideology. And now we have Trump and Banning saying it, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not a good good place to be. So here's a here's another question from a, a fr- our friend Marguerite. Um, she wants to know uh, what does it mean for Seattle to be a sanctuary city, and how can we offer support and influence to nearby cities like Tacoma and Everett uh, in order to follow suit? Yeah. So this is. Um, this is rooted in a very in some really specific things, and I don't have the exact years right, but you know it's fairly long-standing. The idea of being a sanctuary city, and and the basic issue is that you want um, immigrant populations to, you know, go to the hospital when they're sick, call the police when there's a crime, you know, call the fire department to come to their house if there's something wrong, and without fear that they will be questioned about their status and deported. And we want that not just for the immigrant population. We want it for the rest of us. This is a fundamental public safety issue. And legally, 
uh, local police departments are under no obligation to enforce federal immigration laws. That's historically been the case, and it's still the case. That's the law. Um, but a lot of cities took that next step and formalized that we are not going to inquire. Nobody in city government will inquire about uh, the status, uh, the immigration status of people who approach them. Would that practically be you get pulled over and a police officer would or would not ask for your paperwork? Is that? Yeah. When, and right. We're not going to be in the business of trying to figure okay. out who the feds should deport. We're not going to do it. And, and by announcing this policy, you know, again, it means that in your, your immigrant communities are going to seek you know, public help when appropriate, which again is good for all of us in the long run. Um, if we do that, we have a safer place if we do that. There, there's a one more level then, which was at a certain point, um, the Fed started asking um, cities and counties, if they put someone in jail, to inform the Feds of, you know, who they had, and then the Feds could run a check and if they determined somebody was should be deported, they could ask the county or city jail to hold them. Hmm. And those, that's called the ICE detainers, for, you know, 48-hour detainer. And one of the things uh, we did in the city was we changed the penalties to a lot of things from one year to 364 days because that turned out to be a trigger for what you had to report. Um, another issue is the city doesn't actually run the, the jail. We, we pay the county, and the county takes care of city jail purposes. So it's a, but it's a live issue for the county. So that's that's a significant thing because cities and counties have been defying the feds and saying no, we're not going to we're not going to report that information to you nor will we honor holds. Um, and so that's a very specific thing that could be you know that Trump can can push on. Doesn't I'm sorry, it doesn't fully answer the question how can we we help with that um, you know, what's come out of this issue is that, um, you know, there's there are a lot of people here who are not authorized to be here but are living, contributing, have families. You know, the most, uh, and I met with them, you know, what are, what are known as the Dreamers, um, which was the, and then they've been, they've been given special consideration under executive orders under Obama. You know, these are people who may have, you know, come here when they were, you know, two or three years old. They're they're American in every way, shape, and form, except they're not legal. They're not eligible for citizenship. You know, um, yeah, sending these people back to Mexico is ripping them out of their communities and ripping them out of their families. You know, so th this is this has become a real tension point, and that's one of the things that immigration rights advocates have been fighting for. Like, let's let's be realistic. It doesn't make any sense to send back to their home countries, people who are really great contributors to our society, and too much anguish, too much heartache, you know, too much division from following such a policy. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, you know, fearful right now. So what is your take on someone who's not contributing to society, um, someone who is potentially, uh, I, I, so I was at the rally uh, mm -hmm. the other night, and one particular woman who, um, I believe Burmese, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where she was from, but she was telling the story of her cousin who uh, basically got into the wrong crowd, came here, uh, mm -hmm. or it might have been in Ethiopia. Anyways, right. um, Muslim family, um, but got into basically the wrong crowd, was incarcerated multiple times, um, and then basically he was 
not taken care of. The system ultimately didn't recognize that, didn't necessarily take care of him. And then he was recently one of the people that was sent, um, sent off. One uh, of the two, deported. I believe. Yeah, one of the d- yeah. deported. Um, I'm sorry, was he deported or he didn't regain entry into the country? I, I, I want to, I think he was deported. I want to say that was the, I, I might be botching the story. And if I am, I apologize. But, um, but essentially that particular person um, wasn't necessarily a contributor of society. Yeah. So what is your take on someone in that position. Well, you know, I, I um, think, you know, I think we can probably take, you know, find cases hypothetical or actual. Right, right. Where there are people who we, you know, don't think should be ad- admitted to the country and do not, you know, and if they're in the country, they should be removed. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to try to get into parsing what that ought to be. Right. Because we have been, even before Trump, so far away from, you know, what I would have think would be an appropriate line mm. in terms of both deportation um, and what it's done to people and families who are, you know, just trying to make a living and trying to be together, as as well as the types of uncertainty it creates for people. I mean, this creates a population of vulnerable people who can be exploited, you know, economically, um, you know, and that doesn't benefit the rest of us for that to happen either. So, so yeah, again, there's, 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 there's obviously a place for, no, we don't want this person here or no, this person should, shouldn't, shouldn't remain. They, they forfeited their right to seek citizenship. Um, but we've been so far on the other side of the spectrum here with who we've been deporting that that's the issue that we haven't really grappled with or, or, or solved. Mm. And, it, you know, under the Obama administration, uh, there was hope that maybe we could get immigration reform to answer those tough questions. Uh, but now we've gone, you know, now the pendulum has swung the other way. And um, we're just talking about trying to defend people. Yeah. So continuing on this this topic of being a sanctuary city, I believe one of part of Trump's executive order says if cities maintain that status as a sanctuary city, uh, the federal government will remove right. federal funding to these cities. Is that correct? Yeah, that was part of the executive order. So it it directed, um, I think, Department of Homeland Security director to name who's a sanctuary city and then ensure they get no federal grants. That's probably overreach legally. Okay. Um, having said that, that doesn't mean that everybody in the federal government won't do exactly that. And then people will have to go to the court to sort it out. So does Seattle have a case to fight to say, hey, no, we want to be a sanctuary city. You can't. Well, again, there's there's certain it, it would come down to the particulars of certain activities. Right. I don't think they can force us to have police ask for the immigration papers of citizens in their daily business. Um, getting back to the issue of um, notifications and, and detainer holds of people that have been arrested you know, they, they may have the legal authority to force that. Um, then you get to the next question of, you know, so it's a mixed bag of what could or could not be enforced. Um, and then there's also what cuts and grants could be tied to that. There is, in fact, a body of case law out there that says you can't just blanket ban all federal funds if somebody doesn't comply. There has to be some nexus between the two. So that, that gives a measure of protection legally, but again, you may have to go to court to win the case if the Department of Homeland Security says stop and all of the newly appointed 
Trump cabinet heads say okay and direct their employees not to pass out the money. Right. You know, again, there's a there's some real illegality there too because who, because, you know, Congress makes appropriations and determines the budget, not the president. Mm-hmm. Congress is supposed to set policy, not the president. Mm-hmm. So there's a measure there. I'm going to go one more level. I'm sorry if I'm going too many levels on we each of these. Yeah, okay, no if we're going deep. We're going deep. <clears throat> Having said that, that Trump may not be, that Trump may have overreached, Congress is no friend of cities. You know, we have a Republican Senate, we have a Republican House, and uh, they weren't elected from cities, you know, for the most part. They're, they're elected from outside of cities. Those uh, Their base thinks cities are... Uh, places, you know, that are with carnage and, you know, full of despicable people who are, you know, doing all sorts of awful things, you know, just right. us people living our daily lives and, you know, doing things like respecting gay marriage and giving women choice and saying, hey, we love it when refugees come here, right? Like, <laughs> to the Republican base, which a lot of Republican senators and congressmen are responding to, why would they appropriate money for us? And they certainly have the power to decide how to appropriate money. That's congressional power. And that has nothing to do with, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if they say, hey, we think uh, transit's a really bad idea. Everybody should drive. They don't have to grant money to cities as we've been getting money for transportation improvements. Um, if they say, hey, you know, homeless people are on their own. We don't want to appropriate any mo- more money for the community development block grants, which is a big chunk of our spending on homelessness. They can say that, you know, again, Trump may not be able to say because you're a sanctuary city, you don't get it. That may be beyond the law. I mean, we may have to fight over that. But Congress can say that because they're the ones that control the the federal budget. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, you know, 75 to 85 million dollars a year in grants to the city government. Wow. Wow. Which is, uh, you know, that's a worst case scenario. Right. Maybe there are enough defenders of transit in Congress to... (laughs) save that off. Maybe there are enough Republican mayors of smaller cities getting, you know, community development block grants who can plead with their Republican colleagues, don't do this. But 75 to 80 million a year is a lot of money. Um, In the recession, um, I was mayor in 2010, we had to make 60 million in cuts. And I can tell you that was not easy. We were reducing community center hours. We were letting the number of police officers reduce slow a little bit by attrition. Um, we, you know, were laying off people. There was a lot we were doing to try to, you know, bring the budget back into balance. We're better off now. You know, we've got, we're flush. It may not be as hard to do it. Hmm. Um, but that amount of money is real money in our budget. It's and a lot we'll, of money. Yeah, and we'll lead to having to make real choices about what we spend on and what right. we tax. So a slightly bigger picture question on this yeah. tension between cities and federal government and yeah. Congress, when can a city decide we don't want to follow federal law? Oh, So I yeah. think of the sanctuary yeah. city, I think of marijuana. Yeah, yeah. Um, nationally, there, I'm sure there's cities and states that would prefer this state issue too maybe, but um, same-sex marriage, you know, that might want to right. push back on that. So right. when it's a law... Yes. And how can a city or a state just decide, nah... We don't like that. Yeah, and that's a great question. And it was particularly true in, in the case of the state on medical marijuana. Um, so 
Yeah, that's that's a theoretically at any time it it's it comes down to this. Well, I'm sorry, I'm I'm circling around this. Uh, Always a politician? No, no. It's, it's <laughs> such a fascinating issue. It's actually one I've thought about quite a bit. So I'm just trying to think about the best way to enter the issue. You know, in, in Seattle, we went, one step was we made it our lowest enforcement priority in the city uh, for the police officers. And that was passed by ballot measure. So, well, that's, you know, we police officers have discretion, some, but you really don't want them to have too much because that leads to, you know, potential for to be used poorly or in a discriminatory manner. Um, but that was that was pro- probably within the bounds of the law. Medical marijuana laws and then legalization were clearly illegal under federal law. And the strongest justification that could be made was, um, hey, states are laboratories of democracy, and this is where everything is moving. So we are in a transition phase, and it would be prudent for the federal government to not be heavy-handed about this law while we are in the process of determining what the new law should be. It doesn't avoid the question of it is, in fact, illegal. Um, And so the Department of Justice granted guidance to the U.S. Attorneys General, you know, or the, the, you know, the, the, not Attorney General, it's not the right, the, the, the U.S. Attorneys, Mm. excuse me, the U.S. Attorneys who are regionally located to, hey, just let it go, right, unless... You know, there's a line beyond which you can do stuff. Having said that, um, the U.S. attorney in the Western District of Washington was shutting down medical marijuana shops that they believed were too close to schools. In a way, they were kind of making up their own law, mm-hmm. right? Because federal law said shut them all down. Right. State law said certain ones can be open. And the Fed, you know, the U.S. attorney just kind of made up a, a, a third law. So that's the hard thing about transition times, that the law is not always black and white. And right. that is the, the challenge. I'm glad you brought this up. That's the challenge when you get into what Trump is doing now as well. Mm. It gets back to that issue of um, when is a president's executive order merely providing more detailed guidance on an existing law rather than, you know, defying it. Right. And right. so the court then has to, you know, wade in on that. So who's the person or people, persons, responsible uh, for deciding that they're, the state's not going to follow a federal law or a city? Well, in this case, right, the, the, we, we, the governor didn't want to do it. Right. The people did. Hmm. So then you have a situation where federal, you know, the Republican, you know, the federal government, you know, Obama didn't want to get the people of the state of Washington angry at him. So he's like, hey, just just let this rest and let this let the states each do their own individual thing. It's not the worst thing in the world, and the law is going to change over the long run anyway. Right. So that was a, a, a practical judgment uh, that leaves everything in a gray area, which, was in a, which is in a great place. Um, something like um, enforcement, you know, I, you know, I was there too as mayor. Um, what are we going to do with all these medical marijuana? outlets that may or may not be legal or illegal under state law. There was a, there was an era, there was a point in our medical marijuana laws where the laws were changed in a very confusing way. Mm. And we, we kind of made up some practical guidance. Okay, you can't go in, you know, no residential areas, you know, the stores, your store has to be where other stores are. We, we just said, we're going to treat them like stores. Right. 
and they have to follow the rules of drugstores, essentially, is what we did. Okay. So this is not an unusual thing to be in this gray areas or flux areas and try to make decisions, uh, but it's also a dangerous area, frankly, right. because um, people can uh, overreach and push too hard and, and go from there. Uh, homelessness. I mean, it's not, it's not legal to camp in parks. I mean, that's an ordinance. It's in the rules. Um, it turns out it's also unconstitutional to tell somebody there's no place for you to sleep. If you don't have a home, tough luck. You can't sleep on our sidewalks and, and parks. So what's the practical solution to that? Um, so far, we have not seen There's one. no easy answer to that. Well, we haven't seen a practical, you know, the practical solution is to provide enough shelter. But we're not providing enough shelter to be able to enforce the laws in our parks. And you can say, well, that's the law, but... You know, practically speaking and legally speaking, um, a place where you make people walk around all night because you're not providing anywhere for them to sleep turns out to be something that can be challenged in court besides being, you know, really immoral. Right. Well, there's a humanity issue yeah. at stake, too. And yeah. I mean, even on this topic, we'll kind of jump to this question, but um, even on this topic, so we interviewed Jeff Lilly, CEO, Union Gospel Mission. Um, episode nine, I think, if listeners want to go back and listen to that. Um, but one of the things that he stressed was that the issue has to do with drug addiction and mental health. And it seems like the city tends to address homelessness with housing. What is your take on that? Or is there some type of balance in between those two things? You know, I think it's multiple causes. Um, I do think providing housing and shelter is a baseline start to helping people get to the to to the next level. And we're just we make it really hard to for someone to get a roof over their head in the city right now. So I, I tend to think that we need to um, you know I look at the um, regulated encampments, and I was an advocate of that as mayor. You know, we should be figuring out how to put people under roofs where their possessions are safe, where they're not leaving a shelter at 5 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. trying to figure out what to do all day and going back to a shelter again, um, or sleeping, you know, in a tent under I-5. I, I believe we really need to um, accelerate the amount of shelter and inexpensive housing of any type you know, whether we pay for it or whether we encourage the private sector to get more on the market, whatever we can take to put roofs over people's heads, I'm for recognizing that there will be a population that, um, you know, has really severe mental health issues or addiction problems that makes them either resistant to housing or, or you know, difficult to work with. Yeah, but but that's a, that strikes me to be a, yet another set of challenges we'd face. And comes back to the same thing, right? What we saw was on mental health was the Reagan administration abandoning a lot of its mental health responsibilities. We've seen the state severely underfunded. Um, same thing that's happening with, you know, housing affordability money and homelessness money. You know, you can say, you can be an elected official in the city of Seattle and say the state and the feds should do more. And you'd be right but you wouldn't be getting anything done. <laughs> mm. yeah. And I think on mental health issues, um, as well as homelessness issues, 
you know, the time for asking somebody else to come in and solve our problem. We've been doing that for a while, and, and this is a recognition I came to as mayor. It's like, this is a bigger problem than, you know, we can expect other people to come in and fix for us. We're yeah. going to have to make, we're going to have to make this a priority, and we're going to have to start cutting through the regulatory barriers and the financial barriers to providing solutions, and that's a prioritization issue, um, which was, by the way, pretty hard to do when I was mayor because we were still suffering the effects of the recession on our budget. Okay. Um, the general fund in the last three years has grown by over $250 million, mm. about a 25% increase. We are in the boom times right now mm-hmm. in this city, and yet we're being told we don't have the money <laughs> to you know, do some, to do more substantial, to more substantially address this. You know, instead we've had a policy from the city to date of, oh, well, we'll declare an emergency and the feds will come in and solve it. Mm. And that's just, that's not a strategy. It's not even, I even hesitate to call it a hope. I mean, that's just like a head fake. You know, it's just nothing. I mean, we got to figure out how to do it here. We have to use it, and if we have to use our own resources to do it, that's what we have to do. That means we may have to give up some other things, um, but in so doing, we you know we could get our parks back, get our streets back. We can put people on their feet, you know. We can live up to our ideals. Right. This yeah. should be a priority, and we've been kind of anchored in the past as to how to do this. And time to break out into the future on this because the, um, yeah, the feds aren't showing up with truckloads of money for us, folks. Right. If anything, they're cutting our money. Well, this is a city of innovation, so you think we could figure that out. But. Yeah, but we, we really get hung up on, um, you know, various reasons why we can't possibly do something mm-hmm. and how it would harm a place if we did something mm-hmm. instead of how it could make our place better if we did it. All right, so we're going to shift to a kind of a potpourri, okay. potpourri, potpourri of, Let's of go, big man. topics. We've been in deep, man. I've been on the good. deep end yeah. to our, on tough issues. Forgive, forgive us. Each no, of these questions, okay, each, well, each of these next questions could be a podcast in and of itself. Okay, so, so we'll try have, to keep it tight. We'll, we'll try to keep it tight. I'll try to keep it tight. So another battle going on right now is with the governor's budget yeah. and fully funding education for right. the state of Washington. Right. What has been, let's apply it to Seattle. In, in the last decade, since education has not been fully funded, how, has, how have Seattle schools suffered? And then what's at stake if we can't figure this out for Seattle schools? You know, I'm not, I can't give you chapter and verse on, sure. on education funding. It was, we worked on it really hard when I was mayor. You know, the families in Ed Levy and, and other ways of partnering with the schools. You know, we really dramatically increased the families in Ed Levy. So I don't know the ins and outs of the state policies, but you know, everybody knows we're, we're underfunded. Um, and, you know, I, my view is that it would have been nice to have seen Gregoire and it would be nice to see Inslee try to figure out how to go over the heads of a gridlock legislature and go to the public for education funding. And that's a, you know, that that's not an easy thing to do, to ask the state to you know, come up with a new tax source in all likelihood to pay for funding, as well as make some reforms that speak to people. I don't well, know what that is, right mix is. Isn't there a capital gains tax that he's introduced? Yeah, um, he's introduced yeah. one that I think looks at capital gains tax as well as a carbon tax Right. as another another one. So, yeah, I'm hope and everybody looks at that and says, uh, oh, that'll never get through the legislature. Well, that may be true. So... So is he designing something, and this would be my hope, I'm not close enough to it to know, 
But are they really taking a close look at, is this something they could bring to the public and win public support for and, and say, look, this is a good thing. Legislature won't do it. Your turn, public. Mm. And we've done a lot statewide on the ballot that has been you know, good, and we've done some bad things on the statewide ballot, too. But it'd be nice to see us go to the public with a, with a strong proposal for funding, because I do think the legislature you know, hasn't been able to find its way towards a, a fair resolution. The mm-hmm. anti-tax sentiment of the Republican side is high enough. Uh, they also you know, want to make changes that the Democrats don't want to make changes uh, to. Um, and I think the Democrats are mostly right on that. You know, there's probably some changes you could make, but I think the Democrats are mostly right on that. Um, but having said that, that's been a recipe for gridlock. Okay. So during your mayorship, you were an advocate of replacing the Alaskan Way Tunnel with the uh, with a road. The viaduct uh, with it. Or, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. The, viaduct, the viaduct, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so the viaduct uh, with a road rather than a tunnel. Right. Surface, surface Boulevard. Yeah. More transit. And uh, people forget this, but we actually thought there were, we know that there were things you could do to change I-5. To If you got rid of a couple of downtown exits, you could actually get one additional lane each way under the convention center. That would be amazing. Uh, that wow. Would, which, frankly, would have done a lot more for traffic in the city than on the waterfront. But I was uh, kind of up against a pretty powerful coalition that that believe the tunnel was the best idea. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the current state of the tunnel? You know, I don't think it's going to solve our traffic problems. Mm-hmm. That'll open up. There'll be two lanes each way, no downtown exits, and they'll want to charge a toll. So we're going to be talking about, you know, unless they get rid of the tolls, we're going to be talking about, you know, 50,000, 60,000 cars a day using that tunnel. That's like as many cars as use the Ballard Bridge every day. For $4 billion or $3 billion or whatever, I don't know. We don't know. We don't even know what the cost would be. So a lot of money won't solve our traffic problems. Money we could have put into improving I-5, you know, advancing transit years ago. I mean, you know, you can see how long it's going to take to get rail lines to West Seattle and Ballard under sound transit. What if, you know, 10 years ago when we started this debate, is it 10 years ago? When was the Nisqually earthquake? Um, 2007, wasn't it? Well, I remember one 2001. Is that the one you 2001. Had? I was here in 2009 when I moved. So Okay, so yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, we've been debating the replacement since the Nisqually earthquake. Wow. Yeah, 2001. You're right. 2007, we were, we were fighting over what the solution should be six years later. Imagine if in 2001 we said, no, we're going to put our money into rail to West Seattle and Ballard. We'd be pretty close to opening those rail lines now where right. we'd made that decision. And that's a real transportation solution. Um, and we haven't even gotten to the pollution or climate effects of this. I mean, I really don't think, um, you know, X number of years from now our kids are going to say, hey, thanks for building, you know, uh, more infrastructure to, you know, make global warming go faster. That's, that was the solution we needed from you. Yeah. I don't think they're going to say that. So, okay. so yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> okay, good. I like it. We like it. Real talk here. Okay, this is this is an important one for me personally. Sure. When will I be able to watch oh, man. a Seattle Supersonics game here in Seattle? Will it be at Key Arena? Will it be in Soto? Or will it be in Soto? Yeah. And um, 
maybe digging into the Key Arena thing a bit, why? What's the current obsession from the city about the Key Arena site? You know, I, I just knew from the instant you said this is really personal to me. I knew it was going to be a Sonic question. <laughs> like there's like a body language that comes up at that point. Well, um, you, you were my advocate, and uh, and now I don't yeah, know. I'm not yeah. sure what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, there there are a lot of different moving parts that have to be in place, and and. You know, it's clear that Ed Murray, my successor, um, abandoned the Soto site. You know, said it wasn't his priority. He inherited it, put absolutely no political muscle into making it go through. And I think there's an open question about as to whether, you know, he's opposed to it, just adamantly opposed to it. It seems that way. But... It feels that way. Yeah, it does. Because, um, you know, it, it, that street vacation just needed one more vote. Um, and now we see, you know, Chris Hansen's come back. Who's a Seattle guy, by the way? And I think we had some problems with out-of-town owners last time. And we got right. a Seattle guy who wants to invest in a team and has now said, you don't even have to loan me money anymore. I'll, you know, the economy's improved. I, you know, I can borrow enough now to do it myself. I don't need any, uh, I don't need help from the city and the county on, on the money borrowing, which he would have paid back, too. Unbelievable deal, like best deal any city has ever gotten for an arena anywhere, you know, in in that regard. So having had that vote from the city council to deny the street vacation, really going back on the deal that was made with Chris Hansen, because they didn't say they, they thought that street should needed to be kept for the city. They said the arena shouldn't be down in the port area. That puts the arena, you know, the, the Hansen group in a tough place. Um, so now we see the key arena one coming forward. Um, and, you know, these aren't, there's not an ownership um, group yet saying we're going to be working with the people that want to renovate the arena to put something there. And obviously key arena, you know, we got the Soto arena got so close to the finish line and now key arenas, you know, really right at the starting line and you got traffic if- issues and neighbors and, you know, all of the other reasons why, you know, all of the things you have to go through right. to build something in this city. You know, we're just at the starting line. And the the companies that are coming forward to potentially bid, you know, they're really interested in creating a concert venue that could support an NBA team, but they're not they're not ownership groups themselves. So I don't have an answer to your question, but you know, we're not I don't think we're in a place right now where the NBA is like Hey, awesome! Seattle's knocking on the door. When you have because a, there is a there's a possibility of expansion, although we don't really know what that is. But there is a possibility of expansion out there. Well, it seems like if if the Soto if the street vacation had been approved and we were you know I don't know if the term shovel ready is appropriate, right. but I'll use it. If we no, were shovel ready, the NBA might. I mean, if there was an inkling of hope, we would um, be able to execute on that. but Well, this Chris Hansen would have been in a position to go to the NBA and say, if you grant me a team, I have all of the permits I need to build right mm. now. So that, whether or not he could have gotten a team, as we know, is a separate question. So that would have been further along than we are now. And so we don't know yet whether we're going to have all of those pieces in place at the Key Arena site. So my last follow-up question, then I'll, I'll let it yeah. go for now. When you have a billionaire offering... <laughs> to to develop your city, yeah, yeah, and I know it's not for free, right? There are costs that the city will bear on some level of even just 
bad traffic for a while or the port, right, is is right next yeah. to the to the potential Soto site. It's got to be um is it it's just is it purely politics that a mayor would say, "Eh, no thank you." Yes. And so he thinks that his, the people voting for him for re-election are more in favor of or are less in favor of having a Soto Arena. You know, the, the maritime unions and the port, you know, put on a full court press and Ed, you know, picked his side, right. obviously. So when you ask, is it purely politics? Um, I hate to say it, but too often in government, you know, money follows power, not it doesn't follow rationality. Mm. The tunnel. Money followed power there. You know, there's a lot of interest that wanted that tunnel. And, you know, any type of analysis about, hey, what's the best way to spend a few billion dollars to improve traffic, improve the economy, um, live up to our climate ideals? Man, we could have done so much with three, mm. $3 billion another way to really get towards our goals. Yeah. But but money follows power. Lots, you know, when, when things get hot. And when the when the amounts are big yeah it becomes even more irrational okay you haven't instilled hope but no i'm sorry thank you for talking about it. but so let's try to let's just go to hope just a little bit we are the 13th biggest market in the country the nba is doing great they're talking about expansion the pieces could come together they should come together but it actually takes people working here wanting to make them come together for Got that it. to happen Good so it could happen so Keep up the pressure, you and your compatriots. <laughs> we'd Keep love up to the have pressure. we'd love to have Chris Hansen on the podcast if you happen to know him. So <laughs> I can uh, we'll we'll see we'll see. <laughs> All right, sounds good. All right, yeah. so I've got one that's personal to me. Sure. Um, I was a soccer player and a skateboarder, so okay. Me, me and a basketball just don't go hand in hand. I'll go see yeah. him, but uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, so I know you're a Greenwood advocate. Uh, you advocated for sidewalks in Greenwood, yeah, as yeah. you spoke about. Yeah. Um, I live in North Seattle. I live in Wedgwood. Yeah. Um, we are, I guess, formerly unincorporated King County turned into Seattle. I go for a run every morning and I'm dodging traffic every day because I do not have sidewalks to run on. Right. Um, what can I and other Northeast Seattleites um, and just North Seattleites in general who don't have sidewalks, what can we do to advocate on behalf of getting those sidewalks? You know, um, there's a great there's a there's a couple of organizations, but one organization that I think is doing really great work in town is called is the Greenways Seattle Greenways, and one of the things they do is they organize locally. So there's a there is a Northeast Seattle Greenways. I don't you know you'll have to see whether there's one in your neighborhood because not every neighborhood has an active group. Um, but that's you know I was talking about money follows power. Obviously, big employers, uh, people that can hire lobbyists, uh, people that can, uh, you know, contribute a lot to campaigns, that's a certain type of power. Hmm. Uh, but there's another type of power, which is the power of people who organize to make their voice heard. Right. And, uh, you know, that was, that was always my, um, that was how I got where I was going. There's power to ideas as well. Right. And power to words, if you're good hmm. with words. You know, Barack Obama was good with words. He yes. wouldn't have been president if he wasn't good with words um, and with ideas. So um, that's the, that's ultimately the way to go get there because um, the city of Seattle is always prioritizing 
within its transportation budget as to what's needed or what's not needed. And again, you know, that's why we end up with $3 billion for a tunnel and no sidewalks. Right. You know, it's, it's why sound, you know, transit was delayed for so long. So there, there are ways to, to get in there. And I think the other thing, and this is now just me speaking as an advocate, and something I wish I'd, I'd uh, made more progress on as mayor, lower cost ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. It seems of, so expensive, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of times if you can just find a way to narrow the street right. and, and calm the traffic... You know, you can find a way to share the space better than mm-hmm. if it's really wide. Because I lived on one of those streets, too. Mm-hmm. When it's really wide and cars can go at high speeds past each other, it's no fun to be walking. No. Yeah. You know, or running or, or with your kid. Mm-hmm. So things that you can do to, you know, if there are lower cost ways to narrow the right of way on residential streets, calm the traffic, create some space for walking or running or kids um, that didn't involve the full, you know, engineered curb and sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing we have to, you know, SDOT's got to loosen up a little bit on that. And that was something we were working on starting. And, you know, um, along with the arena, one of those things I didn't get to, mm-hmm. you know, get get further along. Well, Mayor McGinn, we are a podcast about Seattle and we yes. could ask you questions about Seattle all day long. Yeah. And as you discovered, I can talk about it all yeah, day long. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but um, our time has come to an end. We always like to ask our guests the same question at the end of every interview. Oh, okay. It's kind of a two-part question. So when you look into the future for our yeah. city, what are your greatest hopes and what are your greatest concerns? Well, I, I think it's, I, I'll make it the same. I think they're both, it's the flip side of the same thing. Okay. Right now. You know, cities historically have been a place where, you know, people could land and start anew. I mean, that was true for my, uh, you know, my, my dad's parents, my mom's grandparents. You know, they were Irish immigrants to Boston and New York City. And, and they could land there. And it's true in Seattle, you know, the, the ID and the Rainier Valley. And, you know, hell, if you go back far enough, I'm sure Ballard was full of, you know, poor Norwegians and Swedes coming over to make <laughs> a new life, right? I mean, that's historically what cities have been. And not just internationally, but... But within the country, too, you know, black migrants from the South fleeing segregation and oppression and, frankly, terror. You know, they came here and they, you know, they made jazz music and they, they, they made rock and roll music and, you know, and they worked in the factories. Cities have historically been a place where people can come to from anywhere, land, and reinvent themselves. You know, if you're a gay kid from, you know, some very rural place, man, you could come to Seattle. So I guess... My greatest fear is in that in our love of our place that we say, oh, we like it just the way it is. You know, we don't want to see a backyard cottage in our neighborhood. We don't want to see a new apartment building. We don't want to see affordable housing, right? We don't want to make it easy for people to walk and bike around. Man, we, want to, we don't want to change things. We want to keep it just the way it is. Mm. And you don't get, cities, you don't get to keep just the way they are. Because yeah. if you try to do that, you lose what they've always been, mm. which is that that place where people can come and reinvent themselves. So that's my greatest fear of Seattle, is that somehow or another we only become a place where people of means can come and reinvent themselves mm. instead of everybody. Yeah. And that's on us. And we can point to Trump. We can point to Republicans. We can point to elected officials locally or at the state and say they ought to do better. 
but we got to look at ourselves and say, we got to do better. We got to make this a place that people can move here, rent, own, work, do every, be who they want to be, most of all. Mm. And we have to adopt that. And we got to become a lot more welcoming. And that may mean a few more cars parked on our streets. Mm-hmm. You know, that may mean a few more people waiting at the bus stop for us. That may mean we have to invest a little more in parks and open space, you know, to, to make our city livable and gracious. But we'll have more people to help us pay for all of that, too, if we invite them in. Right. Right? They can all shoulder the burden. Right. You know, and that's what the future is going to hold if, if we are open to it. And if we say, no, we want to just preserve this place just the way it was, because it's always so great. It was always so great. But, but that doesn't guarantee greatness in the future. Mm-hmm. we got to do that. So that's my hope and fear, is that we're not going to do that. And my hope is, I don't know, I've always believed in Seattle. I think we can get there. Mm-hmm. I think we can do it. It's great. It's awesome. Uh, one more question uh, that just popped into my head is, what is your key takeaway from being a mayor of a major U.S. city? My key takeaway, you know, I, um, I can't even describe to you how diverse this city is. I just can't. And how many different cultures and subcultures make up a city. You know, like for me, my biggest takeaway was um, just, you know, I got multiple takeaways. And by the way, I'm working on a book. I don't know if I'll let oh, it finish sweet. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I'm, so I'm struggling to answer this takeaway. Plug it. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. One takeaway was, was positive, which was just, I was so, so grateful to have that opportunity, you know, because I, I learned so much from the people in that four years. I got so much smarter and so much more understanding and got such more breadth. Of, of knowledge about people and things than I ever had before. So just on a really personal level, that was a takeaway. My other takeaway was kind of what I was getting at in my prior answer, which is we can be awfully self-congratulatory about our progressive values here, and in so doing, keep below the surface those real differences that we have to surface and address. Um, you know, one of them's climate. You know, we pass a resolution saying we're, we're, you know, climate, you know, we're going to go to zero uh, carbon. We're going to be a zero carbon city or a carbon neutral city. That's it. We're going to be a carbon neutral city. At the same time, council's passing that resolution. They're saying, hey, let's get a, let's get more and bigger highways built. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was like, w- which one, guys? Mm-hmm. You know, can we get there? Um, we feel really good about, um, and we should feel really good about our, uh, that we want uh, to divert, you know, respect for people of all, you know, ethnicities and national origin. And, you know, we want to have a diverse city. But we're, you know, turning our back on so many homeless people and we can't seem to find mm-hmm. the money. Well, we can find money for other things, but we can't mm-hmm. seem to find the money for that. So I think that's the other takeaway is that that's more deeply rooted in our political system because the politicians have an interest in making all the other politicians look good. They have an interest in not letting the bad issues surface because when they surface, you know, who knows what might happen. You know, right. Somebody might not win re-election. Right. So I, that was one of my other takeaways was that in a one-party town, which we are, mm-hmm. there's a real interest in that one party in suppressing discussion of difficult issues mm. and not surfacing them because it'll make them look bad. Mm-hmm. And what they need to do is make each other look good. They can keep re- get reelected, and they can keep saying to the public, "Hey, we're working on that. We're doing the right thing. We, hey, our values are with you. 
You know, it's just there are these all these other things we got to get to first. Very frequently, the things that the big and powerful donors wanted in the first mm. place. So there's a lot of uh, uh, cognitive dissonance out there about, you know, and, and not really being straight with the public about the source of the challenges and what to do with it. You know, now having said that, you know, being very outspoken, as I was as mayor, isn't necessarily the best path to re-election, but I felt it was the one that um, was the appropriate right to the times. Yeah, Totally. Well, it's been an honor. Where can our listeners uh, keep track of you, follow you online? Okay, so I do have a Twitter Twitter account, yep. Mayor McGinn, and I, I tweet. I turned off my Facebook because I was, you know, time management. <laughs> I, got, got it, I kicked it off my phone. It's still Good on, for you. I kicked it off my phone, yeah. and it turned out I'm saving some time now. Um, you, Me, Us Now, my podcast, you can find it anywhere podcasts are carried. Um, you, you can find it there. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in working on an issue to make Seattle better, feel free to reach out to me. I, I, I try to uh, help others who are trying to get active. In you're very city. responsive on Twitter. So <laughs> there you go. True. Man. There you go. That's how you ended up here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank been a joy. you so much. Thanks for doing really the podcast. really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, this is awesome. Rise Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter at the Rise Seattle, and use hashtag Rise Seattle to be a part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.